Our subject this morning is strengthening the awareness of God in our lives. And what we are doing right now is one of the best things that we can do to strengthen that awareness. We are having satsang. We have gathered in this beautiful place dedicated to God with other spiritually minded people to enliven our spiritual lives, to fan the flame of our devotion, our longing for God. And that longing for God is the very most important thing that we need on the spiritual path. We have to want God. And you may think, well, my devotion is not that great. My spiritual practices, I can't string two hong saws together in a straight line. (laughs) Thank you. But just the just the desire just the the even wanting to want god is a great blessing yogananda said that remember it takes very 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 good karma even to want to know god so that karma of wanting to know god is what will eventually free us because that desire, like every other desire, has to be fulfilled. And when that desire for God is fulfilled, everything else will slip away. Yogananda said, when ecstasy comes, everything else drops away. So... Remember that you are blessed because you want God. Even if it's not perfect yet, that seed is there. And also remember that God wants us. There is that pull towards materialism, towards darkness, towards death. But there is also that pull of the Spirit towards the light God is coaxing us, drawing us through every circumstance, through every person, through everything. He's speaking to us. He was speaking to us in that chant just now. He was giving us instruction. Listen to my heart song. Listen to my heart song. Listen to the sound of the heart's love, the heart chakra. Listen to the cosmic ohm that vibrates within yourself. Become in tune with God through that vibration. And then God is also giving us his promise in that chant. I will never forget you. I will never forsake you. Who else in this universe can promise us that? Who else can stay true to that promise? And someday, if we continue fanning the flame of the heart's love for God, someday we'll be able to sing that chant back to God. We'll be able to say, 
Listen to my heart song. It's completely in tune with you, God. And I can promise and keep my promise that I will never forget you and I will never forsake you. There's a beautiful passage in the Bhagavad Gita that says, well, the Bhagavad Gita is a conversation between Lord Krishna and his disciple, Arjuna. So this is God speaking to us, God speaking to the devotee. And the Lord says, On me fix your mind. Be thou my devotee. With ceaseless worship, bow reverently to me. Having united yourself to me as your highest goal, thou shalt be my own. Well, how do we fix our mind on God? This path has many tools. Yogananda said, if you practice one one-hundredth of what I have given you, you will find God. And of course, chanting is foremost in how to fix your mind on God. It's designed specifically for that. We could talk all day about the benefits of chanting, but it's one of the easiest and best ways to experience that vibration of God, that joy in your heart. It's Yogananda says it can be the very first taste of that joy. It's a great blessing, half the battle, all of that. So if you know how to sing, chant. If you can play an instrument, play the chants. If you can't sing and you can't play an instrument, you can play your iPod. Play the chants. Let them fill your mind. We have to fill our minds with the right things, the things that will help us to grow. It's very important. It's just, it's like a mental diet. We don't eat junk food to feel healthy. We do it for other reasons. (laughs) But we want to be healthy spiritually, then we have to feed ourselves with the right things. Now I'm on my second page. So chanting, affirmations. Anandi gave us that, led us in the affirmation for psychological success the other day. Yogananda has a whole book of affirmations. Swami wrote a book of affirmations. Write your own, specific to your need. Train your mind. Get your mind focused. Mantras. And Swami's music, another great way to fix your mind on God. I had the great blessing of focusing on Swami's music for over 25 years. It was a big part of my sadhana. And I am so blessed by that because he called his music philosophy and song. And that philosophy would come to me, still comes to me, when I'm in trouble and I need advice, 
or I need a course correction or an attitude adjustment, that music is in my consciousness. Put it in your consciousness. Have it come to you as that great teaching vehicle that it is. It's a great, great blessing. We talked about satsang. If you don't live in a community, there's no reason why you shouldn't live in a community, but if you don't, then you can still keep spiritual company. You can still have satsang, read the lives of the saints, and study the scriptures. The scriptures, pondering the scriptures is one of the most important things on the spiritual path. Dive deep in them. You know, we think positive thinking is sort of a new age concept. It's in the Bible. <laughs> in Philippians, it says, Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is just and pure, of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Fill your mind with the right diet. Be thou my devotee. This is God's commandment to us. He is saying, You're my devotee. I've given you these teachings. Practice them. Do the right things. Put out energy. Do what I'm telling you to do. Swami had a uh, very wonderful uh, discussion on karma in the Success and Happiness course. And he talks about karma as the loving hand of God. The loving hand of God guiding us to do the right things. And he talks about the suffering that comes from karma. And he says that suffering has a purpose. The purpose of that suffering is to awaken in us the willingness to be disciplined in order to do the right things. And doing the right things, we are freed of karma. So that karma is a blessing. The suffering of it leads to willingness to be disciplined, to do the right things, and then we're free. I had a great, valuable experience with awakening willingness. This happened when I was uh, a freshman in college. I would often volunteer to do to participate in psychology department experiments because they paid you. And uh, so I showed up one day and they sat me in a chair with a computer monitor with a steering wheel attached to it. And they said, okay, drive your car in a straight line down the road. So I confidently sat down. I knew how to drive a car. 
And within seconds, I was frustrated, I was annoyed, I was irritated, and I was ready to give up, and I was probably muttering under my breath, because the steering wheel was not behaving like a normal steering wheel. And so, you know, that part of the experiment was over, and I got up, ready to shake the dust from my feet from this stupid steering wheel. And they gave me my $20, and as I was heading out the door, the person running the experiment said, but, you know, um, if you learn how to use this steering wheel, I'll give you $50 more. (laughs) Suddenly, my mind shifted. I was no longer frustrated and impatient. I was focused. I was willing to be very patient and figure this out and apply my mental capacity and make it work. And I did. And I got my $50. But more than the money that I made, I learned such a lesson and how we can change our energy in a nanosecond. We don't need to slog through and make this tremendous effort. We can do it instantly. We just have to want to. We have to be motivated. Well, the spiritual path is a very serious thing in one sense, Remember, Yudhisthira in the Mahabharata was asked, what is the most wonderful thing in the world? And he answered, the most wonderful thing in the world is that human beings are surrounded by death all the time, and they think it will never happen to them. (laughs) We are, as Kamran told us, the eternal Atman, But we have a physical form, and that physical form is ephemeral. It just lasts a moment. We have to identify with the reality. So, I'll tell you another story on Be Thou My Devotee. And this happened many years ago long before most people had cars at Ananda. Nobody had telephones. And I was scheduled to be part of a small singing group that would go with Swamiji to Reno to do a, be part of a program that he was putting on. Well, I had a minor f- surgery on my foot the day before we were supposed to go. And I didn't realize that my foot would swell up and be so painful, and I couldn't put any weight on it. And I was living way up in Haranyaloka. I don't know if you still call it that, but that was what we called it, that big hill opposite the Living Wisdom Center. And I had to walk all the way down to the market to get the ride to go on this engagement. So I went to sleep that night thinking, There's no way I can walk all that way to the market tomorrow. I'm just going to have to stay home. Well, I woke up the next morning, threw off the covers, 
I'll be darned if I'm going to skip an opportunity to be with Swami Kriyananda just because of my stupid foot. I remember that I have no memory of walking to the market. I must have done it. There is no other way. That little bit of tapasya, I don't remember at all. What I remember is Swami Kriyananda standing behind me, singing the bass part of Go On Alone. And every time I sing that song, I can hear his voice. So we think we're doing so much tapasya, so much austerity, sacrifice. Our lives are so hard. We're doing so much. It is nothing compared to the joy that comes back to us, the blessing that we receive. I would walk a hundred miles on that foot to have that experience of Swami every time I sing that song. Years ago, we had a festival here in this meadow, and somewhere around here we built an obstacle course because we had games and races and lots of fun activities. So we built an obstacle course, and there was um, oh, rope webbing that you had to climb up, and then there was a rope that you had to swing across a ditch, and there was just all these obstacles. Well, since Yogananda said there are no obstacles, there are only opportunities— We called it an opportunity course. (laughs) So think of that. When obstacles come to you, they are opportunities. They are God saying, I love you so much that I want you to grow and change and come to me. There's a, a beautiful story from the life of Padre Pio, who was an Italian Catholic saint who passed away, passed away in the ni- 1960s, so he's a recent modern saint. And Padre Pio would often... Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm editing as I go here... Uh, people would come and sing under his window every night. They would chant, they would sing, and at the end of this little kirtan, Catholic kirtan, uh, they would call out, Good night, Padre. Give us your blessings. And if he was physically able, because he had a lot of affliction, in, in addition to having the stigmata, but if he was able, he would walk to the window, and he would always say the same prayer. Yes, my children, a river of blessings to you. And and then he would say, may the Lord bless you and make you holy. And one night, as he was turning away from the window, there were other friars in the room there with him, and one of them piped up and said, May the Lord bless them and make them holy with no difficulties, meaning may they not have any problems. And Padre Pio, 
who was not your meek and mild little saint, very sternly said to this padre, What? You have to have difficulty. That's what we're here for. This world is to take tests, to grow and learn and change. And difficulty is how that happens. So, in conclusion, with ceaseless worship, bow reverently to me. See everything and everyone as God coming to you. I've been doing an interesting thing lately. You may enjoy this. I, um, when people are speaking the truth and I feel God in them, I imagine that it's like an intact hologram. The image of God is shining through perfectly. And if they're not really speaking the truth, or they're being a little curmudgeonly, or if they're being sarcastic or anything like that, I think, oh well, there's just a little distortion in the field. (laughs) It's God trying to shine through, but it's a little distorted. Why be upset by a little static? Why be upset or allow your inner peace to be affected at all just by a little distortion in the field? So cultivate that sense of wonder in God's creation shining through all these different forms. Again, in the Bhagavad Gita, in a different place, it says the wise awe-stricken, worship me. Be that way. Be awe-stricken at this incredible creation of God's. Having thus united thyself to me as thy highest goal, meaning make God your priority, make being in tune with him a priority, make being in peace your priority, And then you will be God's own. Namaste. Boy, oh boy, Master sure has given this monk a large family. (laughs) Thank you all. So my name is Jitendra. And what I noticed this week, uh, there are many threads, of course, that we became aware of. And one thread was Nayaswami Jaya got pulled into multiple talks. So I figured I would invite him into this talk. And just a couple of days ago, I had the blessing to host an early morning uh, webinar with Jaya Ji uh, for India. And just before we began the webinar, he very sweetly and simply, full of grace, just said, isn't life beautiful? And I was very touched by that, and I felt a deep blessing in that moment. And isn't life beautiful? And I agreed, and I felt that blessing. But then my mind just shifted a couple of gears, and I started just thinking about some of the technical things that might go wrong or the things I had to do later in the day. And that beautiful life didn't seem so beautiful anymore. And I asked, what happened to that beauty? And this is our journey. 
is to live life beholding God in every moment. And when we do so, we see his beauty in everything. Master in the autobiography of a yogi, in the last page of the AY, Master writes that all saints who have penetrated to the core of reality have testified that there is a divine universal plan and it is beautiful and it is full of joy. Well, Master also said that isn't it easy to forget God? Even Master would often say this, isn't it so easy to forget God? Try to remember that he is the doer, that he is the reason why we're living. And I was reflecting on this the other day as I was driving from the monastery to where I serve with Online with Ananda. I quickly caught myself feeling, oh, I have to go to work. Well, I'm not going to work. I'm here to serve my guru. And I really felt that I'm not here, and we're all not here for spiritual entertainment. We have lots of beautiful entertainment on the spiritual path, but each one of us has incarnated with the potential of becoming a Jivan Mukta. Swami Kriyananda, when he was in India, he was in a temple, and he was meditating, and one of the priests came to Swamiji and said, uh... Swamiji, what are you meditating on? What are you praying for? And Swamiji said three things. He said, I'm praying for the love of God. I'm praying for liberation. And I'm praying that all people become free. And I think that this is the highest octave that Swamiji has come to remind us through his books, through his music, through everything that we have been gifted through Ananda, through Master's Grace, that if we can hold that highest goal in this life, naturally, when we call out to God, as Nirmala was saying, with that thirst of reaching to the farthest capabilities that we have to pull God into our hearts, and we pray that we want to become free because we want thy love and we want to share that love with everyone. This Yoganandaji said that this is the highest prayer for man. So we have that potential in this life. Swamiji tells a a great story. Once Master came to Swamiji, and Master asked Swamiji, why is it that the earth doesn't just get sucked into the sun and be obliterated? And Swamiji thought for a moment, well, I presume he was looking for information on this, and he was interested in astronomy, so he went for it. And he said, well, sir... It's the centrifugal force of the earth that keeps it in the revolution around the sun that keeps pulling away from the sun. And Master just shook his head and he said, well, what keeps the sun then from just vanishing out in space? And Swamiji thought again for a moment and he said that, well, sir, it's the gravitational pull of the sun that is always pulling the earth into itself through the power of the sun. And Master just smiled and walked away. And Swamiji said that it was only later, a few months later, that he realized that, of course, Master didn't need to know about the uh, astronomical, astrological phenomena of why the earth is the way it is. But in fact, it was an allegory of the soul and God. And God is always, 
always in every moment pulling us back into himself. To just think of that and to remember that, that every moment that we stop and we listen and feel for that pull, for that, that whisper from eternity, that God is always pulling himself back to himself. But we also have this centrifugal force to deal with. And of course, the list is long, but it is our goal really as devotees through the, the master's grace that we begin to wash away this pull, this centrifugal force pulling us away from God. And there's two that I just wanted to touch on today, which is brother fear and sister doubt. Fear is something that is, you know, in response to the beautiful talk that Shanti gave, the toxicity for the yogi, that fear presents to us is something we can work on. And when we overcome that fear, we can feel that sense of inner freedom. Uh, Yoganandaji would share a story that once in India, in this small village, there was a few deaths that occurred. And there was no apparent reason for these three deaths. So, of course, the villagers became very uh, cautious and very uh, disturbed by this. So they gathered together and they went up to the uh, local sadhu and pleaded with him, uh, Baba, can you please help us? There is this uh, unknown uh, illness that has killed three of our villagers. Could you please uh, help us and intercede? And so the yogi said, I will intercede. So the villagers left with comfort. And that evening, the sadhu meditated and he discovered that it was a demon that came and uh, planted this illness in the village. And so he invoked that demon and he said, look, this village is under my control here. I'm looking after this village, so you have to promise me, don't, don't come back and uh, inflict death on anyone else. Do you promise? And the demon promised. So... Uh, a couple of weeks later, the a hundred more people died in the village, and the villagers were so concerned at this point, and they rushed back to the sado and said, "You know, beloved, your prayers have not worked. There's been a hundred more people that have died." And the sado said, "Well, that's strange because the demon promised that he would leave you all alone. Can never trust a demon." <laughs> But what happened was, of course, the villagers trusted in the sadhu. So the sadhu said, I will intercede again. And so that evening he meditated. And he meditated, and of course, the demon came. And he said, I thought we had a promise that you would no longer cause conflict in this village. And the demon said, beloved, I, I promise. I, I promised that I would not come back. I, I did take those three people, but all the rest died out of fear. Master said that fear attracts to itself the objects of the fear. Within us, Padma did such a beautiful job talking about habit. Well, within us, also in the subconscious mind, lives the fear habit. And Master said this fear habit will intrude itself and magnify every little thing into this large, fearful event. It could be the smallest little bug, but if there is this past habit of fear, that little circumstance may be 
uh, it may even cause a heart attack. Who knows? And so Master said that you are all made in the image of God, and you have the same powers and potentiality of God. So you should never think that any trial, any circumstance is greater than your innate divinity. And this is really our job as devotees. As we go into meditation, we grab a hold of that power. We wrap ourselves with that potentiality so that when we go forth, we're washing away that fear habit. <clears throat> Master, of course, as many of us could assume, that f- a calm heart, fear cannot enter. And this is why meditation is so important for us to go deeper and deeper in meditation. There are many fears that we might all have right now. And Swamiji actually discussed some of those fears, of the fear of, of course, loving, the fear of the unknown, the fear of death, and so on. The fear of the unknown for us, I think, is really important for us to increase our capacity to become ever increasingly aware of God's presence. Because when we meditate, we have that potential of going into samadhi. I love the story of Nayaswami Devashi, who tells the story of one day he was very resistant to going to the long meditation at the hermitage one day, and he walked down. And he was just reminding himself that maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day that I experience God. So the unknown for us is really, we're all walking that path that reflects to that statement that man is going where no man has gone before. Sure, there has been many great souls that have gone there. But for us, we're still, we're still going forth in that quote-unquote mystery that we're trying to unravel. And there's a story of this man who uh, loved nature, he loved animals, and it was his mission in this life to try to free animals that were stuck in captivity. So he went out on this excursion to uh, search for animals that he could free. And on his journey, he stayed at this little cabin in the middle of the woods. And he noticed that as soon as he walked in, there was this golden cage with this, this parrot inside. And the parrot kept repeating, freedom, 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 freedom. And so he thought right away, of course, his heart was touched because that was his life's mission is to help animals, help really anything to become free. So the owner of the parrot soon went off to bed and this man was laying down. And again, the parrot just continuing, freedom, freedom. So he thought, well... I think I have to let this bird free. So as soon as he noticed that he heard some snoring going on, he knew that the owner was asleep. And so he very quickly rushed to the cage and opened up the cage. And the bird, the parrot was saying, freedom, freedom. And he said, you're free. Go forth. He opened the windows and he said, fly in the open sky. But he noticed the bird wasn't moving. But it continued saying, freedom, freedom. So he thought, well, maybe I need to help him. He must be afraid. So he went in to try to grab the bird to coax it to go outside. But the parrot started pecking him while still continuing saying, freedom, freedom, freedom. And so, of course, he successfully got the bird and he threw it out the window and he 
the bird flew away and he said, you're free. And he felt so great of, of the great deed he had done. So he could then go to bed. And so he went to bed and he then, the next thought that he had was he started hearing the bird again, freedom, freedom. And oh, he felt such joy that he visualized this bird up into the high trees and chirping to all of nature. But of course, he opened his eyes and he got up off the bed. Lo and behold, the bird was back in the cage with the door open. And so this, sometimes we get caught in the ego. The ego loves comfort. The ego loves that familiarity. For us to increase our capacity to feel God, we have to trust. We have to trust that God is guiding us in every circumstance to guide us to that next step. When we trust more that God is guiding us, the more that we can relax into that presence. There, I wanted to share this affirmation, which I think is one of the most powerful affirmations that I uh, have ever used or heard of. Master said that to banish fear, the greatest way we can do this is by intensity with going into focusing on courage. And courage is so important for the devotee because we know that we're going to be faced with challenges. And it is our ability to step up to that challenge and to put out the energy and that devotion to overcome that challenge. And Swamiji once told the story that he was speaking about this courage that we need really to keep our hearts open, to keep trusting that if we continue to love, that we won't be left with nothing in return. And one of this person that he spoke to, one of the monks, he said about courage, he said, well, he said that, well, if I, if I expand my, my love and I love more, then people are going to start to like me more. And if people start to like me more, they're going to want to spend more time with me. And if they spend more time with me, I'm not going to have any more time left to myself. And Swamiji just shook his head and walked off. I'm sure he prayed for that, that person. But it is something that we're always being asked to put out more energy. And we're asked to put out more love and more joy and more and more because the quest for God, as Master said, requires dynamic energy and dynamic willpower. And if we begin to retract into ourselves, then we're going to be just living with that which is. So this affirmation is really powerful that I, in I invite all of you to do along with me. I will read a little bit that Master writes up until the affirmation, and then you can repeat after me, and we'll just do this a few times. And so I invite you to close your eyes. And Master writes, Heavenly Father, thy cosmic life and I are one. Thou art the ocean, I am the wave, we are one. I demand my divine birthright, intuitively realizing that all wisdom and power already exist in my soul. God is just behind my reason today and every day and is guiding me to do the right thing always. 
God is the indwelling self of man in the soul life of the whole universe. And now let's repeat this affirmation together, out loud together. I am submerged in eternal light. It permeates every particle of my being. I am living in that light. The divine spirit fills me within and without. I am submerged in eternal light. It permeates every particle of my being. I am living in that light. The divine spirit fills me within and without. Now whispering, I am submerged in eternal light. It permeates every particle of my being. I am living in that light. The divine spirit fills me within and without. Now mentally, I am submerged in eternal light. It permeates every particle of my being. I am living in that light. The divine spirit fills me within and without. Om Shanti. So, this is a very powerful affirmation to practice because as Master said, where there is light, no darkness can dwell. And so we can skip ahead to the, really that highest technique, which is attuning to that light. You might be wondering why I brought this fancy little box with me today. You might even be wondering what's inside the box. Well, this box is very precious to me. And a little backstory in the box. A couple of us, when Nayaswami Devarshi was moving to India, he was giving all his stuff away. And or most of his stuff, at least. And so it was the last day before his flight, actually the morning of his flight. And there was just two of us at his apartment trying to get the last little things picked up. And his last thing that he had, we both drove him to uh, the airport. And the last possession that he had was this, this little box. And inside was filled with change. Stacked, I mean, this box was very heavy. And so on the way to the airport, we start, stopped at the local uh, supermarket, which they have one of those machines that you put all the change in, and then you get cash in return. So it was a very joyful uh, event being there with Devashi as we dumped this box, guessing how much was in it. And then it was his last possession. So he said, well, he looked at us both and he said, do you have any need for this box? And uh, my first thought was like, No. <laughs> Absolutely not. But then at that moment, I really felt Master enter. And and I was reminded of something that Master said. And he said that he only has one thing. He has a little box. And that box is never empty by the grace of God. So we have nothing to fear that... No matter what comes to us in life, no matter how much love we put out, no, ma- no matter how much our jobs change, no matter if our meditations are going well, no matter what happens in our life, 
that if we can shift into that absolute complete trust in knowing that God is going to provide for you, He's going to give you everything you need in this life if you are open to His guidance. And your box will always be full of His love, His guidance, His grace. But we doubt that. We doubt the presence. So often we go throughout the day and, of course, we feel that spark of love, of joy in our meditation, but we, we slip into doubt. And this is something that really begins to block our ability to feel God in every moment. Our hearts are that driving, it's a driving engine as well as a compass. And when we are filled with fear and doubt, it blocks that flow. Swamiji, I think, taught us a very beautiful lesson with a story he often would tell, that once he remembered that he was in the desert with Master in 29 Palms, and he noticed that there was a, a, a thought left in his consciousness that on a beautiful sunny day without a cloud in the sky, if Master said that it was raining in Los Angeles, that he still had that little voice of doubt that maybe Master is wrong, maybe, maybe he's wrong. And he noticed that no matter how much he used reason to solve this equation, he came to that point of realizing, well, I love Master, and I know Master loves me. And so Swamiji said that doubt is the answer. I mean, I'm not, that's not... <laughs> rewind. You can rewind the camera. and <laughs> Love is the answer to doubt. <laughs> And this is for all of us to, to really remember and to never doubt that, again, if we can go into our meditation and devotion is going to be that answer for us. It's that absolute certainty of God's love will be our raft over the ocean of delusion. There is a story that relates to 29 Palms. I was a disciple for maybe four years or so, three years, four years. And I found myself in the middle of the desert. At the time, I did not know that Master had a retreat in 29 Palms. And I was there in the desert on a very important film shoot. And at the time, I was still holding on to a film career. And so this was a very big opportunity for a small team of us. And it was about 120 degrees or something intense. But I, we were all very excited. Well, we landed in Los Angeles, drove out to this festival and the next day I woke up, I had severe pain, severe pain in my abdominal muscles. And I, of course, was just pushing through it, knowing that this was a very important film job. So that day went through, I survived. The next day I woke up, the pain was just increasing until I would just walk 10 feet and I would lay down on the ground for five minutes, get up and walk five more feet. And until I was realizing that I, I think I need help here. So... Being in the middle of nowhere, there was a small tent where there was medics. So I went, of course, to that tent seeking an opinion of what's happening. And I was, I was really having a lot of pain. Of course, I was trying to remember Master, asking him to help me. And so I got there and the doctor wasn't there. So the nurse said, well, you can lay here on this strange looking bed. And I, of course, said, okay, I'll wait for the doctor. So two, three, three and a half hours goes by. I'm in so much pain. And I was so, uh, I was doubting that, you know, I have this guru. Where is my master? Where, where is this help that I need at this moment? 
So the doctor didn't come. So I got up and I was like, well, I need to keep searching. And I kept asking master, please help me, help me master. And so I was walking off and I was, I found myself next to a security guard. And I found, I think I found comfort with that, with this person for some reason. And at that moment, I was talking to him about mundane things. And this boy walked up and he said, I need you to call a rescue at this moment. I was just told I have appendicitis. It's going to burst. I need to be rushed to the hospital at this very moment. And at that moment, I felt that that's what I need. And I felt master that brought this person and told me exactly my situation. So, of course, I acted on it and said, that's what I need. (laughs) So I went to step two get to the hospital. Where's the hospital around here? So sure enough, there's this little dinky little hospital. And I thought the fear just rushed in. I'm going to have surgery in this hospital. Well, got to the hospital. And of course, the funny thing is I never saw this boy anywhere around this hospital. But I get to the hospital, of course, right away. You have appendicitis. They did an MRI. You need to be rushed into emergency surgery. And I was laying down being prepped for surgery. And I get a phone call from my friends. And they said, what's happening? And I said, well, I'm being rushed into emergency surgery because my appendix uh, is going to burst. And they said, oh, my gosh. They said, uh, you, you know, they were trying to figure out what, what, was, what, they, were, what they could do to help. So they said, well, well, we'll come there. And I was like, no, no, no. No, this is a very important film job. You should stay there. If you come here, there's no one there to film. So I said, no, no, you stay there. And they said, but, but you're all alone. And at that moment, a little switch hit. No, I'm not alone. No, I'm never alone. We're never alone. As soon as I shifted my consciousness of simply recognizing that master is here, the master is always with me. I was engulfed by a master's love and presence. All fear, everything washed away. So all we have to do is remember, master is always with us. And we use all, everything we've saturated into our consciousness of all the beautiful talks all week to begin to put them into practice. But to never, never doubt that master's love is with you and he will test you. And we have to go through the experiences. We have to go through our challenges. I wanted to close with a a beautiful story that uh, Mary Kritzman just released a new book, if you're not aware. It's uh, Healer's Handbook. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And one of the stories in that book is very touching, where many of us know uh, the beautiful soul of Tim Kretzman. And Mary includes a chapter in this book where she describes Tim's journey. And Tim went through a a very, very challenging time of lots of misdiagnosis and just lots of suffering was happening. And as soon as they found out that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, they said that you you have on your hands mispractice. You You can sue them in have lots and lots of money from this mistake. And what Tim said at that moment is something that we can all really hold close to our hearts and learn from this moment when that very simple response that Tim said is that I don't want to go down that that road 
of bitterness. I have to have known that master knew what was happening. And he just offered himself fully into master's hands. And if we can follow that example in every moment to no matter what's pulling itself into our life, just to keep offering ourselves, know that master is going to guide us back to God. So many blessings to all of you. In his talk at the beginning of the week, Jyotish reminded us that it's all about consciousness. And I want to take that a little bit farther. I think most of us have heard the amazing quotation of Sister Gyanamata, Master's foremost woman disciple, the things that happen to us do not matter. What we become through them does matter. And that's a very simple and, of course, very challenging phrase. And if we unpack it a little bit, we see that the first part, the things that happen to us do not matter. Well, I think to most of us and most people in the world, except for a, a few saints and masters, the response would be a little different. Um, I, the things that happen to us really, really do matter because if they're nice, we feel happy and wonderful. And if they're not so nice, we feel pain and suffering and so forth. So it's an interesting challenge to our consciousness to accept that the things that happen to us are neutral, that, the, that they are in fact a representation of karma that we've put forth and it's going to find its way back to us in one way or another. But it gives us the challenge, and this is where what Jyotish was saying about it's all about consciousness comes into play. We have to strengthen our ability to accept that the things that happen to us are not what determines our consciousness. What we do with them determines our consciousness because what we do with them determines how free we are. We have the choice what we do with them. We have the choice over our consciousness and what we become eventually is truly our consciousness. The topic uses the word, today's topic uses the word strengthening, strengthening our awareness of God's presence in our lives. And that word conveys to me a a certain muscular uh, element, strengthening our awareness. And I thought to share with you a few stories indicative of ways that we can strengthen our consciousness. I'm going to begin with a a small caveat, which is that, first of all, your mileage may vary. Um, Secondly, these things are not designed to make us feel guilty if they are things that we've never done or could never even dream of doing, because each of us is going to find our own way to strengthen our awareness of God's presence. But perhaps we can receive these as inspiration for 
the possibility of that strengthening effort. When we lived in India some years ago and the monastery was just beginning over there, there were, there were a handful of monks, maybe five or six, and someone had the inspiration to do a six-hour meditation on Mondays. Monday sort of was the day off. Um, I put that in quotes because there really were no days, but Monday was the nearest thing we had to a day off. And so from six in the morning until noon, the monks would do a meditation. And the first of these first couple or so went by, and I was not able to attend for various reasons. But I thought, well, gosh, they're doing this. I should I should go. And they invited me to lead the next one, so I definitely plan to go. And so I got there, and I had I asked them, so what what do you do? And they said, oh, well, we have a prayer, and we sing a chant together, and then we meditate for six hours. And maybe we do a healing prayer at the end, and, you know, it's all good. And I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> um, what would you think about having a chanting break after three hours? <laughs> oh, well, that would be fine. <laughs> And I thought, how wonderful. You know, in the enthusiasm, it's like, well, why not meditate for six straight hours? Now, I, I will not, I, first of all, I wasn't there for those ones where they went six straight hours. But the ones I was at, there was a little bit of movement. It was by no means a bus station. These were beautiful, wonderful meditations. But that exuberance to be willing to try. Some of us here who have long memories back into the early 1980s may recall uh, an episode that the monastery had, which I was a part of at that time, of called 48 Hours in Eternity. And we had this inspiration because Master one time meditated 48 straight hours. We were not going to meditate 48 straight hours, but we, we set ourselves a challenging uh, goal which was to dedicate an entire weekend to God. And so the first night we chanted and we meditated, and along about 4 o'clock in the morning, we began an eight-hour meditation till noon. And I don't know, probably many of us here have done an eight-hour meditation. We often do them at Christmas. And in Sacramento, as Ananta mentioned, we do an Easter all-day meditation as well that's also eight hours. But starting one at four in the morning after staying up all night, well, now that's a little bit different. That's, that was a little, that, that was stretching my personal envelope, I can tell you for sure. And yet after three or four hours, I remember thinking, well, after three hours, I was thinking, gosh, this could be a long time. But along about nine in the morning after five hours, I thought, this is going to be over in an instant. I better go deep. And... And it was. I mean, noon came around very, very quickly. And yeah, uh, not all of us stayed up those whole 48 hours because the second night gets a little tougher than the first night. <laughs> the second afternoon is a little tougher. But nevertheless, we stretched the envelope, and it was memorably so. And we jumped in the lake. We did all sorts of things. But think in our lives... What can we do to stretch the envelope of our spiritual experience 
to go past the point of comfort and, as Jatender was saying, the point of familiarity. We get familiar with the little cage, perhaps the little golden cage of our consciousness. When will we step out that door? When will the chant, freedom, 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 turn into an actuality, a realization? In India, a few years ago, at the time of the 150th anniversary of Lahiri Mahashaya receiving Kriya initiation from Babaji, we decided we would celebrate that event. But we didn't do what we might typically do otherwise, create a huge public event around it, because Lahiri had not felt the inspiration to create a big organization. Some others of his devotees wanted to, but it wasn't time for that. I think he could see into the future that that job would be master's job to do. And so we thought, well, then rather what let's do is let's dive into Kriya. Let's dive into meditation. And so we dedicated a weekend and our, four, we didn't call it 48 hours in eternity, but it was organized similarly and differently all at the same time. Perhaps um, 30 years more maturity uh, gave a slightly more balanced approach to it. But what we decided to do was to meditate for two hours at each of the four times in a day that are sort of ideally suited to meditation. So around the sunset, this was at the uh, equinox, the fall equinox in 2011. So from 5 to 7 on Friday afternoon, from 11 till 1, 11 at night till 1 in the morning, 5 to 7 in the morning, 11 to 1 in the afternoon, and so on. And we did this until Sunday evening. So we had nine two-hour meditations And if you do the math, you see that there are exactly four hours between the time that you finish meditating and the time you're going to start meditating again. We only made two rules for this little retreat. Rule one was, if you're going to come to the meditation, come at the beginning. You're welcome to leave at any time, but don't come back in. So you have to be there at the beginning. You're welcome to stay the whole time if you can. Don't sleep in the temple. But the other thing that we said was, Nobody goes without sleep this weekend. So you are required to take a nap in the afternoon. And those nine meditations, a number of people attended all of them and did a thousand kriyas, thousand and eight kriyas, whatever. Lots of kriya was done on that weekend. And it was deeply balancing. You know, sometimes when we stay up all night for Shivaratri or we stretch really hard and really far, what happens afterwards is a little bumpy. <laughs> we sort of, we stretch the envelope, yes, but now we're kind of, our, our willingness is a little sore afterwards. And in this particular case, it wasn't. It just was more and more joy. And it felt, there was, there was no sense of being tired. By the time Sunday morning rolled around, that midnight meditation was beautiful, and the early morning meditation was beautiful. And you could feel those little subtle shifts of energy. You could feel them on the inside. So let us, and and I say these things not to, more to indicate that passion is helpful in the spiritual life, but passion has to be balanced by patience and persistence. 
because passion may ebb and flow, flow and ebb, as the case may be, but patience and persistence gives us the vision of a lifetime dedicated to God's presence with us. I appreciated Ananta saying, this is a 24 by 7 job that we're doing in the spiritual life. It's not just the time that we're meditating. And I want to, uh, I should have done this earlier, but I want to thank the players from last night. What a beautiful, let's give a hand of applause. It was so deeply inspiring to to live the life, to see the life that that young woman, Lisa, was living, to see it through Swamiji's eyes and to hear the music so beautifully done that sort of moved that play into our consciousness. We are all of us, if we haven't worked this out yet, we are all of us, Lisa, and we are all of us waiting for and a little bit in trepidation of when God comes as that light. Because at some point, that light does encircle us, and we get a little shocked by it because it's really, really intense. And I wanted to add to and we have to stretch our ability to receive it. We have to open our hearts beyond what they've been open to in order to be willing to take that love fully and completely. I wanted to add to Davy's three C's that she gave us earlier in the week, calmness, concentration, and condensation of experience. I wanted to add a few more C's that are helpful. And one of them, I think, is a little bit unexpected. And that word is context. Culture is context. Years ago, the first time we brought Indians to America, and and particularly to Ananda on a pilgrimage, we asked them, sort of just from a cultural standpoint, did they enjoy being in America? Because for most of them, it was their first time here. And we got a very interesting response because they said, well, this isn't America. This is Ananda. (laughs) And it was like, well, yeah, come to think of it, it is. (laughs) We sort of think we are in America, yeah, in a sense, but in a sense, no. We live in a world of context, and the culture of Ananda is a contextual one in which we have gurubais all around us. We're, we're all familiar with the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a community to create a sevaka. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, someone who's really dedicated their whole life to serving master through Ananda it, a sevaka does not spring up in isolation. We live in connection with others all around us. And it comes in subtle ways. I mean, some of us wear bangles and some of us wear this little cute blue thing that says, I am the change. And it's a great reminder. I meditate. Oh, yes, I meditate. Hmm, good idea. <laughs> but those are little 
it, little reminders of we're part of a world that is supporting the effort that we make spiritually. And if we think, in the beginning, we need the support of others. I, I have vivid memory. In fact, going back to that 48 hours in eternity experience, I was very young on the path and fairly young in life, probably 20 or 21 at the time. So everybody basically was ahead of me on the path and ahead of me uh, spiritually. I remember my first winter living on Teepee Hill and Sudarshan was, Sudarshan's teepee was up the hill from me. And I spent a little time with him and he guided me in various ways how to do this and that. And I asked him at one point how long he had been at Ananda and he said four years. And it was like four years. Wow. That's amazing. It was just like beyond comprehension. (laughs) So it helps in the beginning to have this sort of wealth of experience around us. It's some, not terribly long afterwards, I had a, a, a funny experience. It was a little surprising at the time, but Devarshi and I were at Lake Shrine, and we spoke with Brother Turiyananda, who was a monk there. And he had been on the path 28 years at that point, which, of course, was just completely out of this universe, as far as I could tell. But he said, we have to be ready just like that to go into breathlessness and he sat in meditation and he you know i i i didn't have the chutzpah to reach over and take his pulse or put the little mirror under his nose or anything like that to see if he was breathing but i was just impressed by the fortitude and the passion with which he had that dedication the fiery spirit but we live in a context in which people are all around us supporting, eventually that context is going to live and take full root inside of us. That universe that we rely on outwardly is going to become so instinctively, so woven into our consciousness that we're never separated from it. Whether we are somewhere far away, whether we're right in the thick of the community, thinking of those meditations where we would go for long periods of time reminds me of an experience that probably many of us can relate to. When you get on an airplane and you're going to take a long trip, I think the longest flight I've been on is about 15 or 16 hours. That's a long time. You know, you've been sitting there for eight or nine hours and you look at your watch and you think, gosh, I've got seven more hours to go here. But, you know, everyone gets on that plane and you can't partway through the trip say, you know, what do you say we just all jump off? What do you say we just get out of here? We're just done. You know, when you're in a group, it's like you make this commitment to yourself and to other people, and you realize that they will know if you leave. (laughs) If you get up and leave, they're going to (laughs) know. You're going to know that they're going to know that you left. And so there's this natural instinct to just stick it through, even if it's not comfortable. And sometimes after a few hours, something amazing happens. It's like the barrier drops down, and we go into this deeper, deeper place where all of us 
looking for that and waiting for that. And those who were here in the early 90s may remember when Swamiji dedicated the Lahiri Mandir, he did something striking and beautiful. And and to my experience, he had never done it before. Others Others may have seen him do this at other times, but he made a full prostration in front of Lahiri's Murti, all the way down on the floor, flat. And whatever he was doing in that moment, I can tell you what he was not doing. He was not demonstrating his devotion for us to see, because devotion is not a competitive sport. Devotion is between us and God. But one of the things that I felt that he did, and it took some years before this realization came, when you are when your whole body is aligned in that kind of way, I believe that something physical, in terms of physics, I mean, happens. And uh, if Kamran didn't fully understand quantum mechanics, I can faithfully say that I understand less. So um, what you're about to hear, take with a few grains or kilos of salt as required. But there's something that happens when, when physical matter, is its temperature is lowered to near absolute zero. And motion ceases or very nearly ceases. Certain materials acquire a quality or an ability that they didn't have at other temperatures. They become superconductive. Superconductive means that huge amounts of energy or electricity can pass through them with no resistance. And seeing Swamiji go into that posture was a physical demonstration of no resistance. And if we think of the very end of Master's poem, Samadhi, Master says, Eternity and I, one united ray, a tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. If we think of that line, we can think of it in the abstract. Okay, a photon is, is a, a ray a united ray of God's consciousness, perhaps, and we we sort of become that. But it's like you make your body become that. We are going to become united to eternity. We're going to achieve the stillness inside to receive the energy of the universe. It's going to pass through us. And that gesture, while extremely foreign to Westerners, nevertheless, we can practice it inwardly and we can practice it in the spirit of God to remove whatever resistance there might be. Kriya, of course, does this. Kriya creates tremendous magnetism in the spine to draw God's grace and to open, our, open us to receive the energy of the universe and to, to allow it to move through us I always appreciated something Swamiji said about Kriya and devotion. He said, devotion is so important for, of course, many, many, many reasons. 
But one reason, he said, is that if we awaken kundalini before we're prepared to receive it, we can ascend in a huge rush. We can have an amazing experience. But then typically the energy falls back down to where it's sort of specific gravity keeps it in a more normal way. We come back to wherever we were. Devotion raises our specific gravity to the point where we're able to sustain whatever God gives us. And that applies to all the things in daily life. We had asked that song to be sung at the beginning, every morning when I greet the sun, when I move forth through crowded ways. We've all done this. When I laugh, oh, and when I cry with pain, when my best friends misunderstand. We've all been through that. In my heart, Lord, ever so silently, I will always think of Thee. And Swamiji lived his life that way as an example for us. And he did that exercise in the Lahiri Mandir to show us how to live our lives inwardly. Not that we're going to go around throwing ourselves down on the ground in front of every murti, but to be respectful of what lives in ourselves that's the divine potential. And know that that potential is in you and everyone around you. And it's in every stranger that we pass on the street. They may not be interested in any outward element of it. They may not be interested in the culture of Ananda. But everyone's interested in joy. Everyone's interested in freedom and calmness. And so know that those are our living, breathing reality. And we can serve the light that Master gave us through each other and through many, many others. Our work reaches thousands and millions, and yet it reaches one at a time. It's not the huge numbers in, in their group, but it's every single one. And however we can touch them, whether it's a smile or a prayer or just the expanded heart to say, my life also supports yours and yours can support mine. We all have that blessing and that potential in ourselves. Om Shanti Shanti.